It's almost like a new period of human history, like the Enlightenment. Well, imagine an entire design renaissance. So the internet is not evolving at random. There's a hidden goal driving the direction of all of the technology we make. Tech companies are actually taking over the world, and they're doing it with our government's help. Uh, so everybody acknowledges that these are valuable entities. They provide value in our life. Government does nothing as well or as economically as the private sector of the economy. But there's also seems to be a growing awareness that they have become so big that they have too much power now. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and is gravely to be regarded. Welcome to the show. Would you like to hear a podcast? Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Foundations. My name is Joshua and today's episode will be part three in the interview that I did with Benjamin Jacobs. It is still going on. We've got four parts in total. So next week's episode will be the final episode of this interview and we'll wrap it all up. So this one today, part three, picks up obviously right where part two left off and we're talking about interest and how that played out and how the concept of usury was seen within society at the time of the early modern period, the Middle Ages, and coming into this time period of the Reformation. And he brought up these power families, the Medici, these uh, money brokers that dealt with uh, money and interest, so to say, not necessarily called interest at all times, but pretty much charging interest to loan money and things of that nature. So I pick up with that and uh, carry that on into discussing this aspect, and I will just start playing that now. So I'm, I'm doing this off the top of my head, so it might not play out the way I'm thinking. But I'm making a rough comparison between these merchant bankers that arose and they were highly based on having these networks and getting information from one place to another really quickly and efficiently. And mm -hmm. so they're focused on, on data and networks, very similar to big tech today, where they're highly focused on data and networks. That's what they do. Yeah. And they definitely have become very integrated with the modern state. There's a lot of government contracts, for example, that go on with companies like Amazon and Google and Facebook and all these companies. And you had mentioned that with these merchant bankers that they had this issue that was the usury issue where they weren't allowed to do this. Technically, it was against their religion and they shouldn't have been able to do that. But it gradually became something that ended up being commonplace. And yeah. it, it makes me think that uh, gathering user data is yeah. something that if you would have brought that up a few decades ago, even that that's something that would have been thought of as maybe spying or yes. stealing information. Yeah. And that would have been frowned upon highly by yeah. these ideals of liberty. It's not religion, it's politics now. So it's this ideal of having freedom and liberty. And that would be contrary to someone taking all your information and selling it to someone else. Yes. But nowadays that's becoming more and more commonplace. And like yes. you said, it's, it's society that is making this something that's okay when it comes to usury and when it comes to taking people's data. So yeah. I, I guess there are some com some comparable things that happened there that uh, I hadn't thought of before, yeah. but you're bringing that out very well. I've got another interesting parallel for you. Um, it comes from my day job. There's so the, the first thing to say is that there's no public transportation company in the world 
depending on how you define public transportation, but <laughs> there's no public transportation company in the world that makes a profit except for one. That is the Hong Kong Public Transportation Authority. Why? What's different about them? Well, Hong Kong is very dense. People use the, the public transportation a lot. And I should say that this whole comment is like 10 to 15 years out of date since I've been, you know, <laughs> in school. So it might be different now. But the thing about the Hong Kong public transportation system is that they have a smart card system. They were one of the first ones to develop it. Um, and he says, you know, so you, you store money on it and then you use that to pay when you get on the system. But then they, they sort of said, you know, people have these cards, maybe they'd want to buy some other things with it. And, you know, you can buy snacks in the subway and things like that. And one thing led to another. And now it's one of the most common forms of, you know, it's a very heavily used, essentially it's a debit card system in yeah. Hong Kong. All the, you know, all the vendors take it. And so they're now a financial services company in addition to being a public transportation company. And so they're making a ton of money off of having money, you know, holding people's money for them on their huh. cards. So it's, it's this whole, it's a, a similar kind of parallel where you sort of, once you're, there's a certain amount of profitability in just having money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And people can sort of slide into these markets without necessarily even intending to initially. So yeah, so I guess the merchants kind of did that. You mentioned the Hong Kong example. Yeah. Um, with big tech, you could say Facebook is a good example of this, creating their own currency. It's, oh, you might yeah. want to send money to your Facebook friend. We'll let you do that in Messenger. Right. And we'll actually end up fleshing out an entire new monetary system based off of this <laughs> and start you know, basically becoming a bank. I right. know Amazon has looked into becoming a bank. So has Google looked into some financial services. And yep. yeah, I guess that's something, it, it definitely goes together it makes sense yeah but yeah yeah we see that evolution kind of occurring now as well as then yep definitely so with this you have some other shifts that are going on uh one of the big things that is happening here is that power is shifting and the roles of different people are shifting so i, I want to talk about that and get this shift from the roles of the nobility and how their place in society shifted coming through the high middle ages, maybe into the Renaissance towards the reformation, as well as the shift in power from the church, the historic church to the nobility that occurs later on. And so I guess kind of how are those integrated? How does that play out? And what are these power shifts that are going on here? Yeah. So I think the first thing to say is, like I said before, the the amount of real power the church had on the ground was always sort of limited by the fact that they didn't have the pointy knives. Um, it, all through the Middle Ages, you you get you know a bunch of we you've got a couple examples that stand out as times where it went badly for the people with the swords. You, you can think of uh, the assassination of Thomas a Becket who became a saint and then everybody had to do penance for killing him. Uh, but uh, if you look at the actual records, it's fairly common for knights to just show up and kill priests. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> it wasn't the thing you were supposed to do. And as you moved into the high middle ages, it became more of a taboo, but um, in general, uh, 
the the soldiers of this era were people who didn't have a lot of scruples. <laughs> so that said, um, the what what you saw shifting was um, more power constant was moving higher up the hierarchy um, as these these noble families sought for themselves and were able to accumulate more land, um, one of two things would happen. Either the, the bigger nobles would accumulate so much land and power that they would just break down the power of the monarchy and the, the monarch would become a figurehead, or the monarch would keep up with them and eventually it would come to the point where the monarch became very clearly in control. Um, I didn't really talk about this before, but essentially the, the ideal sort of in the, in Charlemagne's empire. And then in a lot of the feudal states that followed him, you know, you could get away with stuff. Um, but if you, if you did something really bad as a noble and the king heard about it and he would hear about it eventually, you knew that the king would show up outside your castle with a giant army and, you know, nuke your castle. Um, mm. So there was sort of a balance of power. The That said, you know, the, the king needed all the nobles to fill out his army. So if all of the nobles were against the king, the king wouldn't be able to do anything about it. So, like I said, it was, it was a balance of power. It was sort of a series of alliances again, based on interpersonal connections and relationships between the king and the bigger nobles. Um, but as you get into the higher Middle Ages and the late Middle Ages, things shift that rearrange the power relationships. Basically, there's a lot of reasons behind this. But my the, the reason that keeps making more sense to me is that all of this is predicated on warfare and the raw physical power of the government and the various actors who were parts of the government and their own private militaries. And what happened is that war just got more and more and more expensive. These little private armies were sort of not cutting it anymore. You eventually, for the kings to do anything, they needed to hire mercenaries initially. And then uh, you started to get the development of the importance of infantry tactics which um, are very effective, but require a lot of people. <laughs> and even though one infantryman is cheaper than one knight, you sort of need a lot of infantrymen to do anything. And this is even before the development of firearms. Uh, you know, the, the Hundred Years' War, which I mentioned before, was just massively expensive. And, uh, you know, they, they had a couple cannon, but really what you're talking about is just huge mobs of archers in the English case. Um, you also saw, um, you know, getting thrown against the French knights and everything. Um, and then you also saw um, the the Flemish militias started really holding their own. And then eventually what you really got was the Swiss pikemen, you know, and you're talking thousands of people who need to get paid, but they just dominated the battlefields of the time. And so if you wanted to do anything on the battlefields of Europe from, you know, the high middle ages to the, you know, certainly by the time of uh, the, the reformation, you needed these huge armies and the, 
political apparatus that existed from the feudal era was just not set up to handle this. Uh, they didn't have bureaucracies. They, they didn't, you know, they, they had some administration, but they didn't really have, you know, teams of people collecting taxes and counting the taxes and making sure things were getting spent on the right stuff. <laughs> and so, you know, the eventually the only people who could put together enough resources to field these armies eventually became the monarchs. And, you know, th- there was this very long process of them subjugating the nobles uh, to be part of their army, to, you know, be part of their administration rather than having separate administrations. And um, it really was a long, long grinding process. Um, Now you, uh, I don't know if you said it in the question, but in the notes you talked about, talk about the nation state. Yes. That developed out of this process, but it took, Basically, you're talking about the French Revolution. <laughs> um, the the whole concept of the nation, it, again, it, it sort of developed as part of this process because as you develop these armies that are larger and larger, as more and more people are involved in paying taxes and then being in the army, you need to make more and more people feel like they have a role in the state. You know, the 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 we talked before about the peasants feeling like they had a role in society and everything. Their devo- their level of loyalty was to their village, to the priest and religion and the world, but mostly to like their immediate area. Um, you know, if their Lord asked them to do something, they might do it. But if the King showed up and asked them to do something, they'd sort of say, wow, you're the King. That's pretty impressive. Maybe, a, a, but you know, who are you? um so the the, this development of the concept of the nation really took a long time and really you know uh didn't really firmly set in until like world war (laughs) one that where where like nationalism by the time of world war one nationalism was clearly the dominant force in European politics and, and nations, coherent nations existed, but like you still had things like the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which were personal unions of a bunch of different people. Um, the the concept of the modern European ethno nation state is um, is something that took a really long time to develop, and really, um, you had a couple places. You know, England had a very national concept behind it, but even in in France, which for the most part stood toe to toe with England through most of this period, um, you know, the the French monarchy was basically an assemblage of different aristocratic holdings. Um, there was this gradually building concept of Frenchness, but it it took a really long time to develop. Uh, what you saw developed first was the apparatus, the political and bureaucratic apparatus of the government. Um, and and I, I'm comfortable with calling things states by the time you get to um, certainly some of the uh, Italian political entities you could call city states and emphasize the state aspect of it uh, in the Renaissance. Uh, by the time you get to the Thirty Years' War, I'm comfortable calling a couple places states like England. Um, to a certain extent, and France, 
but their concept of nationhood was very limited. The, the ideological aspect of it. They hadn't quite brought the common people on board yet. Yeah, that makes sense. So I guess if I am drawing out the parallel here, my parallel to modern times kind of ends uh, at the Reformation or just prior to the Reformation. So these kind of after effects, you mentioned the Thirty Years' War and nation states beginning to be a thing. They're not maybe quite a thing yet, but we mm-hmm. see the, the, the birth of these original ideas. They're in their embryonic stage, so to say, and we see what will come and we do see that that is starting and that that has the apparatus behind it has been developed and is developing but mm-hmm. it's not quite there yet it's in the future and so that's that's one of the things that um that I have been playing out and thinking about is yeah. kind of the future what what plays out if you do have these things taking place with anti-establishment movements taking hold trust being taken away from governments people actually trust corporations more than they trust governments nowadays and if corporations play the role of the nobility and they start taking more power and a bigger role in society which we already do see happening you you did mention that churches didn't have all the power that you might think that they would have had and that sometimes knights would even come in and kill a priest and that kind of happened and yeah. that wasn't a one-time thing well i i would argue that maybe there have been times that corporations might have sabotaged a political career and gotten a politician out of office yeah and that that definitely happens and so or, you know the the term banana republic you know <laughs> yes yes exactly so there's definitely things going on today that we see the beginnings of who knows what that will play out to be but yeah, yeah my guess is it'll be something new it's not that we're going to have this corporate oligarchy where corporations run the world i highly doubt that you didn't have that with the nobility it wasn't that the nobles just took over everything it was that this new entity was created the nation state and nationalism came up as an ideology it was something different and so it's it's interesting to theorize of what the differences will be for us in our modern time and i won't necessarily uh ask you to elaborate on that that's something i'll get into unless you have opinions on that I guess the one thing I'd say is that the important thing about the development of the state was that it was able to drive loyalty. Uh, it was able to assume uh, you know, the ideological loyalty that had been given to the church in some ways was eventually some of that loyalty was able to be shifted. That, that not just loyalty, but like enthusiasm and passion moved from uh, religious exploits to to secular state level exploits. Um, you know, I might feel good about, or I might feel okay about Google having my Gmail and everything. Um, I, I don't, you know, I've never worked for anyone that like I implicitly trusted <laughs> <laughs> to have my best interests at heart in any way that like, that I thought that, you know, when I worked for Boston market, like <laughs> I was going to go somewhere and die for Boston market. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I suppose the only exception would be that now I work for the, you know, a subset of the American government. So <laughs> yeah. and you probably haven't put in that trust in a politician either. No, right? no, no, no. But yeah. So I, I think there's, um, you know, whatever has to come next, either it's going to be complete, 
anarchy, or there has to be something that develops that allows society to organize the loyalty groups that have developed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I agree, and that's something we're a little off track here, but that's okay. We can go with this. Um, (laughs) It makes me think of some of the movements that are going on today with ideologies, you're talking about how people really have to get behind something. They have to transfer their loyalty. There has to be an ideology behind it for something to really take root and take off. Mm -hmm. And what I see when it comes to movements like this, it reminds me of something like climate change, for example. It's Mm -hmm. issues like this that are global in in scope. It's not that people are really looking to their personal government, putting their trust and hope in their national government to solve these problems of climate change, for example. They may expect the government to play a role in that, but uh, most people view this as a worldwide problem, something that humanity as a whole is dealing with, and their faith, their trust in dealing with this, it doesn't seem to be something that will be completely laid on a national government, it seems like it'll either be laid on some other uh, worldwide entity or maybe something like the UN, for example, something that is more global in nature and not necessarily their their nation, which is a change in ideology from nationalism, which still is extremely strong, don't get me wrong. Yeah, I I was going to say that we're seeing a a huge uptick in... in nationalism's never hasn't been this strong since world war ii that you know because it was kind of thoroughly discredited by the by <laughs> world war ii so you know that we're, we're seeing a real reemergence of nationalism as a, as a legitimate concept right now um and i that said you know climate change definitely is i think people understand that it's a people are definitely thinking globally, at least in terms of their ideologies. I I think that's fair. And one of the interesting things about nationalism is there is sort of a, a global aspect to it where a lot of the forces behind it are, seem to be, you know, you know, completely without borders, which is strange. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and that does play out with the reformation. For example, you did have, a breakup of the church. It wasn't that Christianity totally ended or that nobody wanted a church anymore. It was that they broke up. And through breaking up, they lost some of their influence and some of their power, so to say. And Mm -hmm. I I guess I would probably say that today with this new uptick of nationalism that is occurring, we do see that power is shifting away from these more national alliances and these uh, groups like the EU, for example, with um, the UK splitting off and you have America getting out of pretty much every treaty and trade pact that they've gotten into in recent years. And uh, these countries are segregating themselves, separating themselves. But as they do so, they're losing that power that they had by having by being a part of this more unified group of multiple nations, there's a lot of power and sway when you have that. You have a lot yeah. of pull. But when you start breaking up and being these totally separate entities uh, through nationalism, then you are losing some of this power that you had. And with that, when people have an issue or an ideology, such as the global warming example, 
they're not going to be able to turn to their government who used to be a part of this big worldwide group that had a lot of power and sway because now that's not really, maybe not really going to be in existence in the same way. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, it's interesting because on one hand, you do have nationalism running strong and everybody, you know, America, and they're all about their country and it's not just America. It's something that's worldwide that's going on. But at the same time, people's ideologies are changing to global issues of economic security and global warning and uh, social justice and things like this that they feel are worldwide problems. So I don't know. It seems really interesting. We're at an interesting time where if these continue to play out, it's it's going to be different, I guess, kind of like through the Reformation. Society looked very different after than it did prior. Yeah, definitely. So with that, uh, going back to the Reformation, what role did the Reformation play in a lot of these evolutionary shifts through the economic Mm -hmm. systems or maybe the power of the nobility or the role of the church or just these different things that we've talked about? What role did the Reformation have in that? And um, I guess that that battle, that anti-establishment movement against the church and against that institution as a whole. And maybe you could even get into some of the the treaties that went down and some different agreements that got made as these evolutions really played out and these shifts played out. But could you get into kind of the role of the Reformation and how that impacted these things? Sure. So part of the reason I, I'm so interested in the Reformation, uh, despite not being Christian in any way, um, <laughs> is there's no social process that is simultaneously had so many wide lasting effects while simultaneously being so much a product of its causes. It's completely impossible to disentangle them. And it's, uh, it's fascinating because it's like all these streams of thought kind of come through this one nexus point and then go out in a million different directions. Um, so in, in terms of the, the causes, we, we've talked a bit about, um, you know, the history of the church. Um, the one thing we haven't mentioned is, I guess we sort of mentioned it, but the, the history of conflict between the church and the secular authorities over who should be in charge, sort of the church or the state. Um, you know, who, who should sit on top of the pile, basically. And it just never kind of, kind of never got resolved. Um it sort of started with a thing called the investiture controversy in the 1100s or so. Uh, that was theoretically resolved with the Concordat of Worms in 1122, but it actually, that didn't solve anything. It just sort of returned. It, it made everyone kind of wrote down that they had this disagreement and, you know, it, the big cause of the conflict had been who, who appoints bishops, the, the, the church or the Holy Roman emperor. And basically they wrote down both. <laughs> <laughs> How helpful. Yeah. Um, so um, you had all these, these back and forths over this, over the course of the middle ages. Uh, you mentioned the Avignon pap- papacy. Um, that was this whole thing where there were two and then three popes at the same time uh and they'd all excommunicated each other and the different popes had support from different countries in europe uh and no one could agree how it was supposed to be resolved and so they ultimately formed the council of constance in 1414 
And that was a really fascinating event, but we sort of don't have time to talk about it. But basically, it sort of deposed all the popes and picked a new one. <laughs> and that worked? It worked because basically everyone was fed up with this situation. Um, that it, it was really undermining the the coherence of Christianity. And, you know, as much as all the secular rulers wanted to have authority within their zone, um, they also sort of relied on Christianity to keep things together in a bunch of different ways and, you know, ideologically shore them up. So um, there's this, okay. So just in a, in a brief uh, version of this, this one Pope organized the council to try and maneuver the other popes out of office. Um, And the council got together and immediately agreed that the other popes were bad and, you know, weren't legit. But also someone immediately presented a piece of evidence that the Pope that organized the conference was also illegitimate. (laughs) And they agreed to that too. And so he he ends up like within the first week or two of the conference, like running for his life. (laughs) Wow. Uh, and then, you know, and they went, spent the next, you know, two years setting church policy and dealing with a whole bunch of stuff. It, it almost became the norm that, uh, there was this whole intellectual movement called counselorism that the council of Constance could have been this precedent setting move that when things got bad enough in the church, you could call a council, get a bunch of bishops and cardinals together, and they would straighten things out. Uh, and, uh, eventually the, the council was sort of not making decisions the right way. Uh, and the Pope that they had elected got enough support from the, the secular leaders of Europe that, um, they put pressure on the council and the council disbanded itself. And then everyone was like, we're never doing that again. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, some historians argue that when Martin Luther started, you know, getting real bad if the the pope had called a council um almost you know immediately and dealt with things then that might have nipped things in the bud actually and and uh, part part of the reason for that is there was a man named Jan Hus who was basically a protestant but you know 100 years early uh and he was in, invited to the council of constance to defend himself because they had already, people had already declared him a heretic, but in the midst of everything else that was going on with the three popes, no one had been able to deal with him. And, you know, because this council happened, they had him come there and they executed him. Uh, (laughs) Even though he had a safe conduct, which led to um, a massive war (laughs) in which uh, the country of Bohemia, which is now sort of the Czech Republic, basically declared itself independent of everybody and beat, like armies from every direction based on crazy, crazy battle tactics that were awesome. But um, that's a whole nother story. <laughs> a very interesting story though. Multiple <laughs> crusades against them. <laughs> yeah. There were tons of crusades getting launched and they, they, they would, they built these war carts and uh, using, you know, a mixture of firearms and agricultural weapons beat some of the best armies in Europe. But Anyway, <laughs> so a hundred years after that, um, Martin Luther starts writing and basically, uh, he has a bunch of problems with the church. The, the specific, uh, theocratic, uh, theological issues are sort of not super important for today. Um, but 
the the wider social context is that the Holy Roman Empire, which had been one of the strongest states in Europe, by this point, um, I'd mentioned you know how sort of power within the feudal hierarchy was rising and concentrating. But what happened in the Holy Roman Empire was that the way the political system had developed, there was no way for it to go all the way to the top. So it was concentrating in the hands of a couple of the big nobles. And they were basically setting themselves up as independent countries, but they, for a lot of reasons that actually go along with some of the stuff you just said about having, you know, being part of something, giving you more sway and stuff like that, uh, it was convenient for them to remain part of the, the, the empire. Um, but there was sort of this growing um, three-way uh, conflict brewing between their needs the needs of the church and the needs of the Holy Roman emperor. And uh, Martin Luther kind of stumbles into this situation. He, he has a bunch of theological points that he was very, you know, he was very much, you know, ideologically into his points, but, um, and, you know, to be fair, a lot of his supporters were too, but this is, a, you know, again, classic middle ages, everything gets mixed together. It's never just one thing. So he, uh, rather than, as opposed to Jan Hus, who immediately got executed, basically, um, he, he gets invited to present his case and he actually gets protected by the, some of the bigger nobles in the, Rome, in the Holy Roman Empire. And essentially you get the empire splits with some of the princes of the empire and a bunch of the cities siding with Martin Luther, the empire is against the emperor is against them. The Pope is against them. Uh, some of the other States are against them, but then uh, there's a war with the Ottoman Turks who are, you know, uh, an Islamic power that's invading Europe uh, in the Balkans and the, the emperor, the Holy Roman emperor needs to focus on that. And so like, there's just this, truce for decades um, where they don't deal with it. And it, again, it's long enough that Martin Luther dies in the meantime. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, and then uh, eventually a, a, a war breaks out between the different sides, but it's almost immediately resolved because it became clear to the Holy Roman emperor that the Protestant princes were willing to fight, you know, a long protracted uh, war and the Turks are still there. <laughs> and so he immediately makes peace at the Peace of Augsburg, which sort of papers things over while the emperor goes and deals with the Turks. Um, meanwhile, uh, Italy is tearing itself apart. Uh, the wars of the Italian Renaissance, we sort of don't have time for it, really, in, in terms of this wider discussion. But the, uh, the city-states of Italy were just going at each other tooth and nail to the point where they didn't even stop when France and the Holy Roman Empire started getting involved. And basically Italy became a, a bloody mess. Um, and so the, the Holy Roman Emperor is dealing with the Turks, he's dealing with Italy, and uh, just never gets around to um, never gets around to dealing with Protestants. <laughs> so a big part of the the success of the Protestant Reformation is just that everyone was distracted uh, for the first for the first you know good hundred years, um, and then of course it, it it all starts in Bohemia. 
again because they're already they basically already got themselves uh everyone just declared a truce with the the Hussites um and decided to let them be uh and then of course you know that means that Martin Luther has a, a big in because <laughs> they're already Protestants before he even starts talking basically um and so uh an argument breaks out between the, the Bohemians and the, the Holy Roman Emperor and it turns violent and the 30 years war starts. And that is probably one of the most horrific conflicts that no one in the United States at least knows about. Um, one of the main reasons I started my show uh, somewhere between a quarter and a half of the German population died. Um, you know, it varies depending on the location and which sources you use and stuff. Most of them weren't battlefield casualties. Um, it was, it was that everybody got involved. The it was this. It became this constitutional crisis between these Protestant princes who are saying, "Wait, you can't come in here and tell us what to do with our religion," and him saying, "Yes, we can." The the the, the emperor saying, "Yes, we can," um, and pretty quickly all the powers surrounding the Holy Roman Empire, again, just like in Italy, they got involved and you had Swedish armies and Danish armies and French armies um, to the point where none of it even made sense. Um, For 30 years, these massive mercenary armies were sloshing back and forth across Germany, looting. And the, the thing that killed all the people is they were stealing all the food because no one had the logistical systems and the bureaucratic systems to support armies of these size, but they needed them to win. And so they were stealing their food from the peasants whose land they were crossing. Plague breaks out, of course, because when people are starving and they're vulnerable to disease. Um, By the end of it, nothing makes sense. You have this, the Protestant powers are all being sponsored by the French government, which is Catholic, with the tacit support of the Pope. Oh. (laughs) <laughs> because at that point, none of it mattered anymore. It was none of it was about religion. By the end of it, it was all about power politics, uh, and the French were unhappy because the Holy Roman Emperor was uh, from a family called the Habsburgs, and the Habsburgs had a habit of marrying into different royal families, so that the the Holy Roman Emperor. Technically, uh, you know, his family controlled Germany, but also Spain and significant parts of Italy. <laughs> and so they were threatening the papacy and France from all, all different sides. And so even though, you know, the, the Protestant powers were breaking up the church or whatever, you know, for geopolitical reasons, the French and the Pope were sort of like funneling them money and the French eventually did get militarily involved and actually had armies going into Germany and stuff. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was, it was a devastating conflict, which by the end was about nothing. Yeah, that sounds about right. (laughs) (laughs) So, so to bring out a few things that, that stood out to me as you're going through that, the evolution of these power shifts that were going on, you mentioned how, power was concentrating in the hands of big nobles kind of in the background. These Mm -hmm. were the beginnings of what would become states or nations or whatever you want to call them. And we have this as well today with my parallels corporations. You you do see a lot of power in the hands of a small number of corporations. And I, I would say probably this is 
industry segregated. So in the media industry, you have maybe four major players. And in the agricultural industry, you've got maybe two or three major players. And in uh, farm, um, pharmaceuticals, you've got a few major players. And in each industry, it's really consolidated to a few mega corporations that have the majority of the power within these institutions. And that's kind of going on behind the scenes. We've seen Proto versions of this, such as maybe Standard Oil, would probably be a good example. Yeah. And you mentioned how there were earlier examples of some of these movements as well that didn't really have the same effect that the Reformation ended up having. But we, we see some of these echoes, but it's really coming out in the Reformation. Well, uh, possibly it might really be coming out here. <laughs> and it, you did say, though, that the nobility really needed and wanted the church for the stability and support that it gave them. They didn't necessarily initially wanted to just oppose the church or destroy the church or get rid of the church. They wanted to use the church. And yeah. I would argue that, and it's been brought up in another interview, that the reason why corporations would never try to take more power is because they make so much money off of the state. And that that's their basically their cash cow is the state to get government contracts and funnel money in and control political positions and control regulation and all these different things. It's for their benefit. Even which, beyond that, anarchy is bad for business. Correct, correct. <laughs> so all, all of that is true. It's very true. Um, at the same time, if things started to change and the government was uh, maybe not giving as much power or as usable, or maybe they're losing some of their authority because uh, the people of the countries are not giving it to them as much, if you start to see a Reformation anti-establishment movements that are really taking hold and start to take off and are mm -hmm. actually real, I, I don't think it would be much of a stretch to say that corporations might take advantage of the situation and ditch their former cash cow to maybe get a little more power, a little more money, a little more uh, political pull as far as the people are concerned and not necessarily use the state as a mediator and as a tool, but maybe take over some of those roles. Uh, you do mention that through the Reformation, the nobility did play this role. By the end, it wasn't about religion. It wasn't about theology. That wasn't the deal. It didn't really matter what the church was doing. It was about power politics. That's yeah. what was really going on. And well, we saw the seeds of that behind the scenes leading up to this, but it, it really came to a head. Yeah, I mean, another way to think of it, though, is that uh, the as far as the nobility was concerned, they, they replaced one church with another church that was, you know, more friendly, <laughs> the, you know, for, for the Protestant princes of, of Europe, they, they were able to swap out, you know, uh, the, the Catholic church where all the money was getting funneled away to Rome to, for a, uh, a Protestant church, which was entirely national essentially. Yeah. Uh, so, I so guess, you could, yeah. you could, they, they, they supported a different party. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, so yeah, that would definitely make sense. Um, with that, I guess corporations wouldn't necessarily want to not have a state period and get rid of the entire state, the, the whole government apparatus. They don't want that. Yeah. They don't want to have to deal with all the managing of organizing a society on that level. They want to mm -hmm. deal with making money and gaining power and doing the bigger picture things. So I, I, I would guess that they would want to support having governments and states, but having ones that are more friendly to them, maybe smaller in scope, maybe break them apart into smaller entities so that 
um, they can handle the things that a corporation may not want to handle or whatever the new entity is, maybe not a corporation, but whatever. Um, You have these economic interests that would play power politics and want to take more control on a macro level and let these smaller nations, these smaller states, these smaller governments that uh, maybe through something like nationalism or some other movement of that nature, stir up those types of ideas so that people rally behind more localized governments. We, we've seen definitely things like this in America with secession movements. You had the secessions that went on for the Civil War that uh, didn't really play out so well for yeah. those folks. But um, it's definitely a thing that people make jokes about Texas breaking off and becoming its own country or California breaking off and just let them go kind of yeah. thing. And, um, and so, yeah, I could see that maybe government and state power becomes more localized. Corporations or whatever the new entity would be would probably back that and get behind that and support that, make that happen because it would be in their best interest to have maybe a smaller, more friendly institution at their uh, in their tool chest, so to say, just like yeah. the nobility of the Reformation, uh, they're going to be served much better if you have these smaller institutional churches that are very friendly to them and a little more localized. So I, I don't know. We could see something similar here. We've got you mentioned distractions. You've got uh, you know, oh no, the Turks are coming. We can't have this battle right. now, or you know, whatever the distraction may be that people weren't really focused on these big power shifts that were actually happening behind the scenes, and they were definitely there, but there wasn't a lot of focus on that. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely see a lot of distraction in today's age where yeah. people are so focused on entertainment. They watch the news to be entertained. They don't watch it to actually educate themselves, and uh, luckily so, because they probably wouldn't be able to do so. But you also got things like, oh no, terrorism. Terrorism is something that states have taken advantage of. Uh, Terrorism definitely exists. (laughs) I would not argue against that. But I would also say that it's obvious that states have taken advantage of this vulnerability that people feel and possibly inflamed that feeling of vulnerability (laughs) and use that to gain more power. It's power politics. You've got things like climate change, for example, that a lot of people are focused on um, from a worldwide perspective. You've got trade wars that are going on and, oh, look over here at this economy that's tanking and um, don't worry about this thing that's happening over here. We're just doing this behind the scenes. Don't worry. It's for your own good. And so, yeah, I definitely see plenty of distractions. I guess the Mm -hmm. modern example on a small scale would be the impeachment of Donald Trump. You've got that going on. Well, at the same time, you had the largest corruption scandal of modern history with Epstein linked to heads of state all over the world and top corporate executives and underage prostitution rings and all this crazy stuff. And uh, yeah, it definitely made a splash in the news. But is anything really coming of that? Not all that much. You might have a few scapegoats and that's about it. But yeah. look, impeachment, that, that's very important. And don't <laughs> worry about all these troops we're sending over to the Middle East even before the Iran conflict flared up. Um, because uh, focus on impeachment. That is what really matters. And, you know, don't worry about these other things, uh, renewing the Patriot Act or whatever else went down because yeah. you know, impeachment, it's a really big deal. And yeah, I see that distraction definitely plays a big role as there are shifts that are going on behind the scenes with these large powers that be. And it's it's interesting. We, we don't know how they'll play out. We don't know how this will look. But if we look at the historical uh, parallel here that we might be able to draw from, um, it's interesting to see that a lot of those pieces actually do fall into place. Yeah. Well, so one of the things to, to follow up on the distraction angle, 
Um, one of the things that really separated Martin Luther's Reformation from one of the from the, from all the others is you know, those were able to be contained in a certain way, um, and then eventually either dealt with or not. Um, part of why Luther, you know, in the time where part of why Luther's Reformation had such a big impact as opposed to the Hussites is that in the intervening time, because, you know, the Hussites had a good hundred years to just kind of sit there um, while being attacked constantly. But, you know, for, you know, why is it that the Hussites message didn't really spread? Whereas Martin Luther's did. And the, the thing is that it it spread like gangbusters. Um, it it was never contained, you know, from from the word go. Despite people calling it heresy and everything, uh, his works were spreading along all the trade routes, um, you know, almost immediately. And one of the big things there, and you know, I'm sure you're going to have a lot of parallels to talk about with this one, <laughs> is that uh, the printing press had really come into its own by the time Martin Luther was working. And, uh, he actually made, um, he formed a direct alliance with, uh, one of the pioneers of printing, uh, a guy named Kranach, uh, Kranach, forgive my German pronunciation, (laughs) but, uh, he's actually a famous, uh, Northern Renaissance artist, uh, partly largely for his prints. I mean, his prints are spectacular, uh, but he is also a very talented painter and everything. He got a lot of patronage from the, the Duke that, of the area that they lived in or the, the Prince, I forget which one it was, but, um, but he and Martin Luther teamed up and this guy was the PR man for the entire Protestant reformation. And he's, you know, deeply, deeply connected to the success of the reformation uh, because, you know, it, it was spreading again, you know, in previous generations, this, these were debates that were limited strictly to the intellectual halls of, uh, of the church. And within that context, maybe some, a lot of this would have been okay. A lot of it was really vanilla. Um, but because it was out there in the press and, you know, Luther and Cranach were releasing pamphlets calling the Pope, the whore of Babylon and, you know, all this stuff, um, you know, that set, you know, people on fire and, you know, it, it wasn't, it's not just about the technology. You have this increasingly urban population that are all involved, that are involved in business. They need to manage money. So they're literate. So there's this market for printed material and the printed material is being spread out along trade routes. Interestingly, Part of the, the part of this is that there is also really terrible copyright protection. So um, <laughs> as these pamphlets would go out, you know, someone at one market town might buy them and go to the next town over and sell them. And then the printers in that town would be like, oh, that's selling like hotcakes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's make sell a them copy. in the next town. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they print off their own copy. They make a ton of mistakes. And they add their own, uh, you know, titillating details. And then, you know rip it off and push it down the line. So this created problems for Martin Luther, because in some cases he was being accused of saying things he didn't say. But um, in general, like this blew up and it went all over the place. And it's also sort of behind um, one of the things that you got by the time of the 30 years war is that there was, it wasn't just 
the Lutheran followers and the, the Catholic Church, you also had Calvinists, who were in some ways an even more extreme sect of Protestantism. And what's crazy is that Calvin was French and never had the kind of support that Luther had directly. Um, he eventually got himself set up as like the theocratic king of uh, a Swiss city Geneva, for right? a little while. Huh? Geneva? Yeah, yeah. He, he was, you know, ruling Geneva for a little while. But the real secret behind Calvin is that he just was a, a really um, fiery pamphleteer uh, in, in his own right. He, he produced a ton of writing. And just like Luther had pr- pried the door open and then just uh, Calvin just flooded out all these uh, really inflammatory texts that just went like wildfire and uh, had completely bypassed the ability of the authorities at the time to censor anything. And so uh, if you talk about most Protestant sects in the United States right now, um, and probably around the world, most of them are actually Calvinists. Uh, It's a very limited group of people who would call themselves Lutheran. Um, And they they call themselves Lutheran. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas you got, you know, Methodists and Presbyterians and uh, Congregationalists and Baptists and all these people are basically Calvinists of some some form or another. Yeah. Um, It's a really fascinating thing. Uh, And it's, you know, a lot of it's just down to this technology. Well, we'll talk more about this technology in the following episode, the final episode of this interview. As for part three that you have just listened to, that is now over. And we will come back with the final part four next week and talk about things like this technology, as well as a lot about the power shifts that were going on and who was gaining political power and how that relates to modern times today. And again, as a reminder, this was all recorded before the COVID-19 pandemic. And so there will be some things that I probably would have drawn out parallels with modern times and things that are currently happening in society. Uh, But obviously, they had not happened yet. So I did not make those parallels. But maybe you'll be able to pull some of those out of there as we're talking about kind of how things are shifting, how they shifted then, and how they might potentially shift in the future Whether or not that has started as I am talking now or not, we will see. But that's what's upcoming. Also, for patrons that are members on the Patreon page and support the podcast that way financially, thank you very much, number one. And number two, don't forget to get on there and look at the most recent post that I put up there. It was the interview that I did with another podcast where I was brought on to talk about uh, specifically conspiracies related to COVID-19. And they're doing a whole series on this pandemic and how it's affecting people and different aspects of it. And they wanted me to come on to talk about the conspiratorial side of things. And so we focus specifically on 5G, Bill Gates, and the Wuhan lab. And those were uh, definitely some topics that I'm sure you have heard about. And we get into those and why some aspects of those are definitely completely false and um, arbitrary. And then also some reasons why... There's a lot of stuff going on that's a little deeper than a surface level glance would give you. And so even though you can write off some of this stuff at a glance, there actually is some real stuff and important stuff that's 
underlying behind some of these issues. And so we talk about that and it, it went really well. I, again, posted that on the Patreon page so you can check that out if you are a patron. And if not, if you've been watching the Twitter feed, I did repost the episode announcement that they've made. I think they've made a few and I've reposted each one of those. So you might have seen it there. I'm sure if you are savvy enough, you can do a few searches and find the podcast. But I'll let you know specifically what the name is um, in the next episode. And that way, patrons get a little advanced knowledge and a more convenient location for listening to that. And since they have already um, had this entire interview with Benjamin Jacobs released all at once, that's what I've been doing. Uh, this will give them something to listen to since they technically don't have a new episode that released this week like the rest of you that are listening have. And so that's uh, a reminder I wanted to make for everybody in general. Just thank you very much for listening. I really appreciate you uh, checking out this podcast and listening to the things that I have really been diving into. I feel that it's very interesting. It can be very useful and it's information that is good to have when assessing uh, current things that are going on and shifts in society and understanding society, all these things. But a lot of people aren't quite as interested in these types of things. So uh, thank you for taking the time to uh, go through this exploration with me and the guests that I've had on. It's something that I've really enjoyed and I really appreciate you coming along with us and enjoying it yourself. If you have not left a rating or review, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave one on there if the podcast app that you are using does not have the ability to do so. You can also leave comments and things on the website. If you stream straight from there, go to the website itself and there are options there for liking certain episodes and making comments about specific episodes and that kind of stuff. So you can leave some feedback there as well, as well as giving me um, some direct feedback. If you want to email me and ask me any questions, give me any comments, anything, challenge any of the ideas, give me any more ideas, I don't know, you are always welcome to send me an email that is ourfoundations at protonmail.com. And so with that, I'm out. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundations Podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.